This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. This week's Shoeshine looks at a rare investment vehicle called a search fund, with the first of its kind in New Zealand having just settled an acquisition of a nearly 40-year-old Wellington-based IT services company. Here to shed some light on the topic is Will Mace. Will, you've written about this for this week's Shoeshine. What exactly is a search fund? How did you come across it? Well, we had an approach um, that sort of sprang out of our dealmakers coverage actually a couple of weeks ago, an email from a guy called Luke Taylor, um, just you know asking us if we'd heard of a search fund before, and, and, and I hadn't. I don't think anyone in the office I had. I hadn't either, no. Um, so we sort of followed it through, and it actually seemed um, like a really interesting topic for this. So um, what it basically is, is, is Luke, he's launched this fund, he's got... Um, say ten investors on board to to support him in searching for an acquisition candidate, a company that he would like to buy. Um, so he searched through nearly a thousand companies. Um, his background, you know, he's has a military background. He was in the navy. Um, he's had managerial roles, sort of in in tourism sector businesses, but he wanted to. He's got this entrepreneurial flair. He didn't necessarily have an idea for a startup, but. He thought, you know, if I can get to the top of, if I can find a company that I'm interested in and be installed as CEO, then, you know, and and have equity in this company, then that's sort of his, his dream that starts there. So that's what he's done. He found out this way of launching this search fund um, to get these investors on board to find a company to buy and then to buy the company. And so he's just got to that point now where the company's been bought, he's been parachuted in as CEO, and uh, I suppose the hard work starts from now. So does he have free reign to basically choose what business he invests in after he's got this fund established? It's it's a, a collaboration with the investors, you know. I suppose each each searcher, as they as they call themselves, mm. will have um, you know a contract or a, um, you know investment um, agreement with their with their investors about exactly what they're going to do, um, what the return could likely be, and the, the the term of the investment, um, and obviously the the sector that they're going to look at. Um, I think. You know, Luke had he went through a thousand companies, so he had quite a broad. Um, He's done his DD spectrum, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think cybersecurity was something that he really looked at, and that's mm. the the company that he ended up buying uh, called uh, Scientific Software and Systems Limited um, in the cybersecurity space. Um, so I think that's you know that is a, a real growth sector. So I think the investors jumped at that at that um, chance, but there are other terms that go along with these search fund investments. Um, obviously, it might be a quite long-term uh, investment horizon, maybe five to ten years, um, with an exit at the end or some kind of liquidity event. Um, another, I suppose, important aspect is that the, the, the terms of the deal mean that the searcher will gain equity um, over the period of the investment and mm-hmm. then that obviously um, becomes liquid at the end with the with the liquidity event typically around eight percent at the start eight percent um, uh, in terms of performance during the middle of the investment and then eight percent at the end so the that's I suppose the the ownership portion that's really important to the searcher because that's what they, they want to have ownership mm-hmm. of, of business um, they end up typically would get around 25 percent from what I'm told 
what are the pros and cons of this type of model, I guess, specifically against, say, PE, VC, which people in New Zealand are probably a lot more familiar with? Yeah. Well, as I said, for the searcher, obviously, you know, the key reason that they've started this is to, is to have equity in a business and to, to get to that um, that sort of owning, operating position. From an investment point of view, um, they are buying an existing business which is profitable um, as opposed to uh, you know something a bit higher risk in, in the early stage startup um, which is obviously what what VC would typically do mm. I suppose you would also um, compare it to typical private equity investment uh, you know which private equity house has a lot of resources behind it um, there will be a different return profile different fee profile if you're if you're um, investing in, in private equity so it is similar um, but different um, it, this a lot of PEs wouldn't necessarily invest in companies that are of the size that search funders would as, as well so it can be can be actually quite small businesses mm. just really opening up that SME market to investment um, you know, investors might want exposure to this market, but the only way that they could do it before this was just buying a business themselves. And then typically that would come with operational responsibilities, which, you know, a lot of investors, they mm. might want to be hands-on, yeah. but they don't want to be that hands-on. Yeah, yeah, Cons, I guess you're backing an individual to, to do a lot here for you. There's a lot of key person risk, yeah. as, as, as they say. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone goes out and gets hit by a bus, then that's a problem. Or if they don't, if, you know... From what I'm told, searchers aren't, they don't have that as much experience as, as they might. They haven't been CEOs before. They haven't owned businesses before mm. necessarily. Um, they're looking to level up their career and they back themselves to do it. And obviously they, you know, that's what that's what an investor is, is, is banking on. Um, if they don't quite live up to expectations, then th- that's an issue. Um, in terms of, uh, so search funds kind of came out of, um, the Stanford um, Graduate uh, School of Business, you know, 40, about 40 years ago. Um, and this is still a relatively small niche, but obviously in, in the States and, and in Canada is, is its biggest niche. Um, and they Stanford still does some um, surveying and reporting, uh, and they calculate the return from search funds average about 35%. Right. Um, and there's a, 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 a success and failure rate, which I think success rates around about 80%, but um, you might need to read the article for that. Um, and Do we have a sense as to how many search funds there exist in the world at the moment, roughly? 401, mm. right. apparently, according okay. to the Stanford study. That was in 2020. Yep. So it's been a couple of years, but they do these studies every two years, so you would expect another one out soon. But yeah, 401, it's not a huge amount on the global scale. And we've got our first one, so far as we understand, in New Zealand now. Like you say, that's sort of reasonably big in other markets. Is it going to take off here, do you think? Or, Well, having spoken to um, to Bill Tonkin, who was actually the seller of um, scientific software and systems, it's actually Triple S is, is what they call yeah. it, um, you know, he thinks it's a great model. Um, he wasn't actually really looking to sell his business until... Um, you know, and he had offers from other from other buyers, but he he heard from Luke and thought, wow, oh, this could actually be a great model for someone like him. And there's so many of them in New Zealand. Um, you know, SME business owners who are perhaps looking to retire or looking to bring in some fresh blood. Um, it's it's an avenue. Another it's a big avenue. theme in dealmakers, deal right? That succession planning. Every and, every year, it's a theme in yeah. dealmakers. Is that succession planning is, isn't isn't so great in New Zealand, and a lot of 
the wealth transfer that we're always talking about from baby boomers, next, those generations through to the next, um, it's going to be a, diff, a difficult one. And this, uh, I'm, I'm told by Bill Tonkin and also by uh, Rob McNaughton from University of Auckland, who I spoke to for the piece, that this could be a really good way of um, transferring that wealth generation because it also comes with um, continued you know, advice from investors. Um, it can have continued um, you know, oversight from the business seller, if, um, as is the case with this one, where the current CEO is staying on for six months to to teach uh, Luke the ins and outs of the business. So it's it's kind of a it's it's I'm told a really good way of that uh, transfer going ahead. Are there any other search funds in the works in New Zealand? Do you know? Um, I'm also told that there, there will be two more in the next six months. Okay. Um, uh, Pete Seligman, who is one of um, Luke's investors uh, in this venture, in this search fund, um, told me he knows of two others. Um, he's an Australian search investor, basically specialises in that. So I think he's uh, he's he's putting more of his capital to work in New Zealand. So it should be interesting. Interesting stuff. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks, mate. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Having worked in health and safety and security, Milford-based Petra Hawkinson believes she could come up with better solutions for remote and mobile workers and struck out on her own, founding Guardian Angel Safety in 2014. Since then, the business has crossed the Tasman and now hires a full-time team of 10. Petra joins me now. And Petra, what was this gap in the market you identified about 10 years or so ago? There was a, um, a lack of truly trying to understand the risk that field-based staff were facing um, and actually making sure that they had the right solution to fit the particular risk they were exposed to. So there was a lot of gadgets sort of selling and monitoring um, contracts that got sold with no real um, thorough understanding of if it was the best solution and training inducers and delivering a holistic solution um, that really had all the support and training and wraparound um, around it for it to be safe. And you were quite a different proposition, weren't you? You were really working by yourself. You were mainly working from home in the beginning. Um, you wanted to sort of disrupt what they were offering in terms of technology. What was it like when you'd go into a room to, to pitch for business? You know, you have to uh, just put a big brave face on. And I, I was very confident that I understood the technology because of my background. So, And I had done a lot of work, you know. It wasn't just an overnight, I'm going to do this. It was a long time of being exposed to the solutions being delivered poorly and unsafely. So I was just very convinced that I could do so much better. Um, and I think when you really know that and, and you passionately believe you can deliver something much better, putting on that big brave face is not so hard, but you just have to know your stuff. And I really always have felt that I did. Because I care about people too, you know, so I really wanted to change it because I hated the way it was being delivered. And you also took a different approach, you said, about being very customer-centric. Yep. Yep. I mean, at the end of the day, while you might be pitching to procurement and health and safety um, and board members, the, the people who you're really seeking to protect are the field-based staff who are out um, in the field dealing with dangerous situations. And so I always start with what are they doing every day and how are they doing that? Um, that's what exposes the senior leadership teams to risk, actually. So if I can understand how we can solve 
some of those issues and mitigate those risks. That's where that's where the truth lies, is being able to say your people are out there today doing X, Y, Z. Um, this team needs this and this team needs that and this is how we bring it all together uh, and that will protect you in terms of the law and it will protect them to get home safely to their families, which is what drives us. Mm. What about being a woman over the time? Um, has, has the behaviour be- um, evolved in terms of the, the kind of response you get? Are we talking about competitors or from, <laughs> from the potential clients? Because oh, it's both, quite different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's definitely still a bit of a, probably a bit of a boys network thing. I think it's an unconscious bias thing that I still see quite a lot. Um, I don't really come across any other uh, competitors that are females. So, you know, sometimes walking into a room and knowing that the people have just pitched um, are two or three guys who've perhaps been hunting with this client in the past or who've been sharing yarns, you know, it's difficult to overcome an unconscious bias because people, um, they want to relate to you. And if you're uh, in a room full of men and you're pitching something and they can't quite relate to you, it just does make it harder. Um, Definitely when there are more of an even group of people you're pitching to, it's good. And, you know, and I think there are lots of benefits to being a woman um, working with us in terms of identifying risk, um, the collaboration um, of teams uh, and of our team with their team. All of those things are definitely strengths. Um, What's the worst aspects of running your own business have you found? The worst aspects can be lonely. It can be isolating, for sure. Um, I find it a challenge sometimes with people. You know, you you add people to your team, and it's supposed to make it easier, but actually creates a lot of a lot of work, but also excitement because it's it's really lovely to have a cool vibe and people who are on the journey with you. But all of those people also have their own challenges in their lives day to day, and so it it creates a different kind of workload. Uh, from just getting on and doing it yourself. Um, So that's, you know, and and finding the right people. A small team is challenging because personalities come out uh, and we're in a really complex environment. Uh, So it's sort of very fast-paced. You know, uh, we have to be super pedantic about doing it right. Uh, We mix a whole bunch of different technologies, so it's complicated. So it's a challenge. I think it's been the biggest challenge, which I hadn't expected because I love people, is to find the right people with the right kind of skill sets and the right personalities and the right, you know, they can't be too sensitive because you know, they might worry all night about did they do something right when they commission that device? Is that going to hurt someone in the field? You know, so there's there's sort of stresses for everyone in the team. So it has to be a really particular person and that's been, yeah, I've found that challenging. Right. Mm. And what about, on the flip side, the best things about working for yourself? Oh, you know, I've never regretted it. I think it's super exciting and exhilarating and... Um, you know, I love the fact that we are disrupting and I love the fact that we are providing just really good safety. And, you know, when I when we have real incidents and I talk to the worker in the field and I hear that my team, our monitoring station operator, the, the, the use and knew what to do, everyone <clears throat> did their part 
to result in safety for that person in a really difficult situation. It's super rewarding. So I think, you know, and, and of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with also watching um, your revenue grow. That's super exciting. You know, yeah. I remember kind of reaching all the different milestones and constantly moving the goalposts for myself, you know, <laughs> and going, that's so cool, but now we can double it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something for women to lean into is like money is, you know, money is why we're in business as well. Yes, we want to disrupt, we want to change the world and our niche that we work in, but actually growing a successful business is really accelerating. The world of work for remote and mobile workers has got more dangerous, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. Why? I think there is a general frustration in the community. You know, I think that... um, the cost of living and, and just the last three years of disruptions and the change of life and all the things that have gone on are spilling over into community. And I I ponder whether people have isolated themselves and have forgotten to kind of collaborate and work and communicate with each other nicely. Um, you know, some of the incidents that we're seeing and the increase of incidents of people who are just going about their job actually in the community a lot of the time you know, animal control officers and librarians and, you know, they're just doing their thing the best they can and some of the um, abuse that's hurled at them is really sad. It's really sad. I mean, while it's not a bad thing for my business in terms of growth and, and need, it's not really a particularly nice way to... Those calls when someone's had a serious incident in their business, it still makes me sad when I hear people treating each other like that. Yeah. Just finally, you've expanded into Australia. Yep. Um, what would you say the main sort of um, differences between New Zealand and Australia are in terms of operating a business? It's quite complicated in Australia. Like I still think New Zealand is a, an easy way, to, not, easy, not, not easy, but there are definitely, there's more support and less, um, even though there is red tape, it feels easier than it does in Australia. There is just a lot of red tape in Australia. I mean, you can't set up a business without a local director. You need to be in person at the bank to get a, to get an left post card. It's, you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's convoluted and complicated. But once you've got your ABN and you're set up, um, there are still really good business networks in Australia as well. Um, I think Australia is just a bigger country. So I think in New Zealand, while you can educate the market, it's five million people. The word spreads quickly if you do good work similar if you do bad work but if you know it's not whereas in Australia each state has different slightly different laws and different parts of their law uh, and they don't really talk to each other so so you really have to be more focused and targeted in your approach in the Australian market which I've found a bit of a challenge but you know the other thing is that six six times the size of the market at least you know and so six same effort in theory, six times the result. Petra, thank you so much for coming in. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz in the Wellington studio with us. So you've crunched the numbers on the tertiary education sector. What's it telling you about how much New Zealand spends? Hi, Jono. Um, yes, uh, we were asked by TEU to have a, a quick look at what the numbers are telling us. And um, we looked at the last. There's not um, numbers 
further away than 2019. So looking at those numbers, we know that New Zealand has increased our education spending significantly. Mm. But if you look at the tertiary education system, um, we are definitely falling behind. So over the last five years, um, our tertiary education spend has increased by 1.9%. We're the OECD average is about double that. And if you look at Canada, um, their increase has been very close to 6% increase, what they spend on tertiary education. Is that related to recent headlines we've seen around amalgamation of universities and, and changes to that sector? Has that played a part? It has played a part. I think we've been watching this a slow motion train crash over the last few years, first with the amalgamation of our polytechnics mm. into Tipukinga, and then the ongoing restructuring within that entity. And then this year, um, the, the chaos and turmoil around our universities and the reduction of staff. So without that, would, have you seen the spending increase? Um, spending has increased, um, but not enough. Um, and uh, if you look at the overall numbers, it's big numbers. But if you look at per student numbers, um, we spend about 30% less per student um, than the OECD average. So we talk about a world-class system and a world-class economy. But part of a world-class economy is also having a world-class tertiary education system. And we are definitely falling behind. So the, the people that aren't benefiting here in the economy will be students themselves, businesses? Students themselves, businesses, but also um, the next generation workforce, because we know a lot of migrants that come into the country that study here actually stay. So if, there's, if we have a slowdown of migrants coming in to study at our tertiary education institutes, um, they will not stay here. How do you turn this around? Is it just about throwing more money at the system? That's a good start, is throwing a bit more money at the system, but also looking at um, what are the objectives in the system, what would we like to achieve with our tertiary education system. And how do you benchmark that compared with other countries that are doing well? I think the big benchmark will be, um, of course, expenditure, um, but also looking in terms of where we want to target our tertiary education system. Are we going to focus on the STEM areas? Are we going to focus on arts and culture? So where do we want to focus in terms of tertiary education? You've pinpointed a country that does well, and that's the United States. It spends a lot of money on its yes. students. What are the outcomes that it sees? Well, the economy is growing, and what we do see is that the economy is growing in the areas that are fast-growing and that are innovative, because they are spending in their tertiary education institutes on those subjects and, and on those very specific areas that will be important for future growth. And should this be a priority for the new government that comes into play? That would be lovely if it is a priority for the new government coming into play, um, because it is part of us being a world-class economy. Neil Murray Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. The election's done, and the incoming National and ACT government, with the possible help of New Zealand First, looks set to effect no small change to employment relations. Joining me from Christchurch to talk about the relevant parts of National's 100-day action plan is Sean Brooks, Special Counsel for Buddle Finlay. Thank you very much for joining us, Sean. 
Thanks, Tisha. Yeah. Um, now, there were lots of niggles on behalf of employers about these two specific uh, initiatives. What what was the sort of the feeling about them being chucked out or likely to be chucked out? I think employers will be pleased to see the back of uh, the fair pay agreements, um, certainly. Uh, that's quite complex legislation. And National has said, along with ACT, that it would scrape it in the first 90 days or first 100 days because it removes flexibility for employers and sort of harks back to the industrial awards era of the 1970s. So sets a whole lot of additional uh, standards or requirements across a whole industry or a whole occupation. And often there won't be a lot of buy-in or agreement from those employers. Yeah. Is it going to be complicated for National to get rid of this legislation or get rid of... I mean, there have been some already um, negotiation, haven't there? There are six that are currently being bargained for. Mm. Um, None of those have actually got to a point where the, the fair pay agreement has been passed into secondary legislation, so it's, it's enforceable. It does create uh, a little bit of uncertainty at the moment. The legislation for the uh, fair pay agreements requires the parties uh, in good faith to bargain and to try and reach agreement on these fair pay pay. Uh, deals or agreements that will be put into place Um, with six of them going on and that still being the law then really they should still be negotiating and bargaining to try and reach an agreement but the reality is that uh, that's unlikely to occur. So is it possible that the parties could just say look this is going to change and we know it's going to change let's just stop doing that right now or what's the likelihood of that happening? I think we will see that uh, maybe more subtly uh, particularly from the employer bargaining teams Um, and there's not going to be in reality or in practice a lot that the union bargaining teams or the employee bargaining teams will be able to do about that um, just because the legislation's likely to come into force before they could take any enforcement action in relation to potential breaches of of the legislation. Right. Um, What about the ones that have already been negotiated? Do they just remain in place? Well, there aren't any fair pay agreements that are actually in place and in force at the moment. Um, So the real question will hang over what about those ones that are almost there? And my understanding is the uh, fair pay agreement for the bus drivers is probably the one that's most advanced. Um, And I, I don't see that that is going to be ratified uh, before any change or within the next 100 days. Wow. So even though it's got to almost the stage of being ratified, because it is quite close, isn't it? It's been in the works for a long time. You think it still won't be put into legislation before National can enact its 100-day action plan? 
That seems likely, yes. Um, wow. But as I say, at the moment, the law still is that these fair pay agreements um, are in place and the bargaining process has to be followed. Um, but there are a number of steps that have to take place before they come into force and before they can be uh, relied on by the unions or the employees to change those terms of employment. Do you think employers will go, oh, right, so now we have a new sort of standard, we understand what the other side want, um, let's just sort of come to a compromise anyhow? Or will, you know, what's your take on how employers will view the lifting of these fair pay agreement ideas? Uh, that's probably going to be different across different industries. Um, certainly there will be, for those six industries that have the fair pay agreements um, being bargained for at the moment, employers are going to have an idea of what's important and what, what's been, what, how the union has bargained for those, um, those standards. So they may try and implement them and bring them into uh, either bargaining for collectives or um, negotiations for individual employment agreements at any rate to try and retain their workforce. Right. And 90-day trials is the other thing that is um, being reintroduced. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So 90-day trial periods were first introduced by National back in 2009. Um, and at the time they were introduced, they were only for employers who employed fewer than 20 employees. And then about a year after that came into force, they were extended to all employers, so without the restriction on number of employees. However, when Labor came into power, it reinstated the requirement that uh, the employer had to have fewer than 20 employees before a trial period could be introduced mm. for, for an employee. Mm. Um, nationals now rolling back again and uh, opening it up for all employers. It does seem quite crazy that this can go in and out of of. Uh, you know, enforcement every three years. It just seems like such a waste of resources, really. Uh, yes. And then they are very short-lived, though. So it is something that can be changed relatively easily. Um, obviously, if an employee has a 90-day trial period in their employment agreement, it's only valid for that 90 days. And after that, even though it's still in the employment agreement, it has no effect. Wow. So it's something that can be changed quite quickly and quite easily. And if it changes, if the law changes and you've got a 90 day trial period in your agreement, um, it may have no effect. Right. Um, in this instance, it'll just open it up. And what we see is a lot of large employers don't have these uh, 90 day trial periods or weren't using these 90 day trial periods in any event. Right, that's interesting. In terms of the 90 day trials and um, the fair pay legislation, how soon does National have to get on to starting to draft things? I mean, will they necessarily make the 100 day deadline that they've set for themselves? 
possibly not. Uh, I, I imagine they'll get things underway, but we've still got a former government that may be some time off, um, depending on when the special votes come in. Um, and then we're pretty close into the Christmas period as well. So we're, we're probably looking somewhere in the first quarter of 2024. And Sean, just finally, um, in terms of being an employment lawyer, do employment lawyers go, yay, this is so much more work for us <laughs> because now we have to change everything? <laughs> or, um, you know, what's, what's the sort of the fraternity view on these changes? Uh, it changes in employment law are something that is quite common uh, with the change of government. Uh, so we're fairly used to these sort of changes. Um, I, I don't think they're something that we uh, celebrate necessarily, but it's uh, just a matter of, of working out which of our clients these apply to and providing advice as to how to navigate the law. And it's this uncertain period um, that, that is the most challenging for employers. Um, they've heard what the various politicians have said during their campaigns, um, but that's not the law yet. Um, and that's important to remember. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much, well, that's great. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.